Hello, and welcome to Imagine Me and Eurekuma. I am Panda. I am your host, and I am here with Alice. Hi, Alice. Hi, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I am very tired, but I am definitely here. And we are here with your co-host, Cass, your wife. Hello. Just when you thought the standing was done. I came back. <laughs> yes, uh, we are not done with Yuri Kuma by uh, at least several episodes that we have either planned out or are planning out. But we are here for a, this is a Yuri Kuma post series episode. I don't know. It kind of, it's a little bit of a friends like that episode, but I don't know. I haven't decided exactly what I'm going to call these, if it's just going to be bonus episodes. But hi, we are here to talk more about Yuri Kuma after having finished it and also some other Ikuhara stuff. And we're here to talk about that with our guest, Taz. Hi, Taz. Hello. Taz, uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. Okay, so um, I'm Taz. I also go by Optimistic Duelist online. I I guess I'm like a homestuck YouTuber <laughs> is what I am. I've done a little bit of analysis stuff on Utena and Steven Universe in relation to Utena 2. But yeah, I... <laughs> I'm a furry, I, I like Ikuhara anime, and I, I am, like, completely obsessed with, like, the relationships between, like, his, his like, original shows, like, the, the four shows that he did after Sailor Moon. So that's, that's my, that's my thing right now. The Ikuhara cinematic universe. <laughs> yes, the Ikuhara cinematic universe. So, yeah, I got into Utena in, like, high yes. school by uh, reading its entire TV tropes page and spoiling myself for everything and being <laughs> like, okay, this looks, this seems like, it seems like there's a good amount of gay stuff happening here. It seems interesting. I guess oh, I'll check a, it out. This is an uh, interesting way to get into this series. <laughs> yeah. But then I watched it. Um, and then like watching like the ending, you know, with like the stadium, the the dueling arena collapsing and everything. It's like the exact moment that I was like, yeah, this is going to stay with me for the rest of my life. So um, <laughs> I'm forever changed by what I've just seen. Yeah. And so it has. And ever since then, I've just kind of kept up with Ikuhara shows as they've come out. So I watched Penguin Drum with some friends um, as it was coming out in college. I watched Yurikoma as it was coming out too. And then I kind of like fell off it because I was like, uh, I, I fell off the fandom because like there, there just wasn't as much of a fandom scene for Yurikuma. There was a lot more uh, negative perception of the show. Yeah, I'm not really surprised to hear that. Uh, what was your experience in like Ikuhara fan circles when Yurikuma was coming out? I was really just like floating around in the Tumblr osmosis sphere. I had interacted with Yasha and Vana 
a little bit through their empty movement Tumblr blog back then. But I never like ended up on the Utina Discord if that was even around back then. I don't think Discord was around back then yet. I don't know exactly when it was established. The anti movement server was established, but it was it was fairly recent. I mean, I know Discord's been around at least as long as this podcast because we used to use it to record, and that was 2016. But I, yeah. It didn't become the behemoth of the fan community the way it is now until much more recently. But yeah, so mostly I just kind of like vaguely orbited like Tumblr fandom circles. And there was a fair amount of Utena there even back then. But next, the, only a little bit of Penguin Drum and next to no Yurikuma that I could remember. So I just kind of like drifted away from it because I guess the thing about me is that I'll just like float from hyperfixation to hyperfixation. Feel that. So when I wasn't obsessed with the Ikuhara stuff, it was like Dark Souls and like the Dark Souls universe of games. And when it hasn't been that, it's been like Madoka or Homestuck is like the prevailing one that has dominated everything else. <laughs> I only barely managed not to get full dive myself back into Homestuck recently, so I understand. Yeah, I <laughs> mean, it's really just a retelling of Utena, so that's understandable. You know, honestly, I can't even I can't even be mad because I'm the one who says that Utena is a mecha anime. So yeah, I mean, yes, things that Utena is a mecha anime homestuck we're compiling a list yeah uh, shrek we have to put shrek on there a cypher for all things yeah all stories are utana and utana is all stories i am fairly certain that i have said that once before on this podcast and it remains true the nature of humanity is such that every so often someone periodically reinvents utana yes exactly but we're here to talk about Yurikuma. Right. But also Utena. Yeah. So I drifted away from Yurikuma in particular because, you know, I fall on like the cis MLM side of the spectrum. So I ended up, I, I came away like enjoying Yurikuma on a personal level, but I'm just the sort of person who takes things as they come a lot of the time uh, on my first viewing. So I knew lesbians and Willowa people who really enjoyed Yurikuma, and I also knew a lot who didn't feel comfortable with it or didn't like it so much, and I just felt like it wasn't my place to enter into that conversation sure. um, for a really long time. And then what ended up happening is eventually Sarazanmai came out. That one was made for me, finally. Thank finally, you, one for the boys. <laughs> finally. Give it up for the boys. Give it up for the boys. So when that happened, like, uh, Sarazanmai is so fixated on, like, intertextuality and references to Ikuhara's other works in and of itself and the way that it's constructed that it primed me to go back to the other three and really take a closer look at them. And Yurikuma in particular, I feel like, came away like really impacting me a lot more on those subsequent rewatches because, number one, I noticed how about Christianity it is in a way that I didn't pick up on on my first watch, which as like an as a lapsed Catholic who like dealt with his queerness while he was still Catholic spoke to me a lot once I like really started noticing it. And then I 
eventually also started thinking about it in terms of like being a specific sequel to Utena in this like thematic sort of way. And that made it a lot more interesting to me too. And now it's like, I think it rivals, I, I, I don't think I can rank Ikuhara shows anymore, but I do think that weirdly enough, Yuri Kuma has ended up being the one that's the most fun for me to rewatch because it's so short and snappy and it's aesthetic sense is like, so it's so much of what I like. So yeah, uh, that's how I ended up falling in love with Yuri Kuma over the course of however many years it's been since it came out now, like six. Jesus, I feel old. Yeah, I think it was six. Yeah. Something like that. But yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of Yuri Kuma as a, an Utena sequel, because you've got sort of laid out here, like each character in Yuri Kuma as like an echo of ideas or concepts that were present in characterization in Utena. Right. And this is like, to some extent, like the I I think that Yuri Kuma is like uniquely interested in being a sequel to Utena. Like in a certain sense, I feel like it's kind of like an alternate version of adolescence of Utena that is like specifically interested in analyzing like the relationship between Utena and Anthe along the lines of like responding to that strain of criticism that I saw of Utena. It's been years since I saw this particular strand of criticism, uh, which I'm grateful for. But basically this idea of like, well, okay, it's all well and good if Utena really did love Anthe and maybe Anthe loved Utena too. But even though she was like coerced into it, Anthe was still like a deeply toxic and manipulative person to Utena. You know, in some senses, there was an argument back in the day, at least, um, that Anthe was if not as much of an abuser to Utena as Akio, then at least an abuser to Utena as well. And that never really sat well with me, but I do enjoy the idea that um, Yurikuma exists almost as like an extended deconstruction of that idea. And in general, as like a work that picks up where Utena left off. Um, so for example, the, the first thing that I wrote here is at the center of Utena, you have the idea of the prince, which is like a one-to-one correlation with God in the mythos of Utena as a show. The prince is named Dios, which is like Spanish or French for God. And like Akio and Dios operate as like alternately this godlike figure that is like in charge of and controls everything and sees all and knows all, or as like this omnipotent savior figure that will like save you from everything and it's like it's the idea of like big brother or daddy knows best and you just have to believe in him and love him and everything will work out because you know uh, the he he's in charge right and that's what utena as a show like sets out to destroy is like that idea of like the savior figure And what's left in the wake of that is Utena reaching out to Anthe and Anthe realizing that like real love can exist in the world um, without the need for saviors or heroes. And then that's what Yurikuma ends up being about is like the central God idea of Yurikuma is love. Um, And it love causes everything, uh, almost everything bad in the show. And it causes almost everything good in the show too. I think how Yurikuma like frames itself is like 
Kumaria in the storybook like literally constructs a, a stepladder or a bridge made of love for the forest girl and the moon girl to find each other through. And when I think about that and juxtapose it to how the show it's constructed, it is like Ginko and Kareha having to make their way through this like maze of other people's loves entangling and complicating their relationship. Um, so like there's Sumika's love for Kareha, there's Yurika's love for Kareha's mother and uh, how it's been like twisted into a consumptive love for Kareha as well. There's Mitsuko. Mitsuko's, I can never remember the secondary bear characters' names. Me either. <laughs> Mitsuko's, the, the Toga bear girls, the, the girl who is like basically Toga. <laughs> her love for Kareha as well. All of these different like approaches and perspectives on love sort of like clashing into each other to construct basically the narrative of, of Yuri Kuma. <laughs> that takes us to like the final the final realization that Kareha and Ginko have about each other and their their the nature of their true love. Wow, I talked for a really long time. I'm sorry. It's all good. No, it's great. But yeah, that's sort of like the central idea that I'm trying to like figure out how to parse. (laughs) So yeah. So I actually have your uh, the notes you set up before the show in front of me. And I remember reading through these like literally seconds before we started recording. And my first thought was, number one, this is a really strong overall analysis, I think, in terms of connecting the works thematically and showing how some specific characters connect to their predecessors in Utna. But there is a character in this list who uh, is conspicuous by her absence, which is interesting to me, because you talk a lot about Lulu. You don't really talk about Ginkgo, which is interesting. And I was wondering about uh, why you didn't write something about her as well. Because I think of all of the bear characters, you kind of talk about how they connect to Anthe as it through a glass darkly. And Ginko is probably the character I think who least connects to Anthe, who is a bear in that. This is actually really funny. Um, so here's the thing. I did write about Ginko. I don't know where her paragraph is. The <laughs> only thing I can figure oh, no. the only thing I can figure is that while I was rearranging the like structure of this, because I couldn't figure out where to put what character, I must have accidentally like put Ginko's paragraph in like my clipboard and then like yeah. copy copied something else. Alright. And just Ginko. lost it. Oh no! <laughs> Rip Ginko. I can't believe you deleted my favorite character like that. I'm I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, well, now that you, uh, well, now that we've like established that, uh, what did you write about Nico originally, or what was the gist of it? So the the gist of it, as far as Kinko's probably a really good character to start here um, with, because Kareha and Sumika are obvious. Ginko, I would say, is Anthe. Um, she she's probably what I would say is like the truest version of Anthe at the end of the show, at the end of Utena, I mean. And by that, what I mean is Ginko and Kareha's story starts when they're children, when for all intents and purposes, Kareha faces the sword, the storm of swords for Ginko's on Ginko's behalf and like protects her from it, but also experiences the trauma of that hatred. Right. Because the exclusion ceremony 
the guns, whether it's like the bullying when they're little kids or the firing gallery when they're adults, like it is the Storm of Swords. Like that's one of the things with these two shows is like swords and guns are synonymous symbols. Like to the point that there's even that one quote um, floating around from Ikuhara where at some point in development, he was interested in doing Utena with guns. Yes. So they serve very similar purposes uh, symbolically. And they they even have like similar like color configurations in some instances. Like when the girls are clapping and like cheerfully like excluding Kareha, it has that same like black and red color uh, palette that you see when Anthe is being crucified by the swords. So there's like there's some really similar energy to those two things. Ikuhara loves a black silhouette against a red background. He really does. I mean, it's compelling. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why the allegory of the cave stays with us. We, like, silhouettes on a wall are pretty primordial things. Yeah. But yeah, so Ginkgo, Ginkgo is Anthe after having received love from Utena, right? And she has set off on a journey away from her home, um, which for Anthe was Otori and for Ginkgo was like the forest of the bears she's set out on this journey specifically to return that love to kareha slash utana and in concert with that you know anthe notably leaves otori while wearing pink which is like utana's color and that's also ginkgo's primary color is that like pink motif so i draw a connection there too so that's that's the version of anthe that i think ginkgo exists to represent What's interesting to me about Ginkgo is that she kind of like straddles the line between doing doing some messed up things or at least feeling like she's done some messed up things and really struggling with her guilt over that and really embodying like the purest sense of the love that anyone is capable of in Yurikuma, which is this like really like selfless, almost self-destructive love, but like self-destruction is not the point of that love. It is like just simply being willing to do anything to be with and take care of the person that you love. And man, I really wish I hadn't erased that. <laughs> I have a uh, kind of a interesting uh, follow-up for that then. Okay. So when I first watched these two shows next to each other, I did not actually connect Ginkgo with Anthe. I connected her with Utena. Really? Yeah. So it's more of a personality thing. Same, actually. Ginkgo basically inherits all of Utena's positive traits, I think. Like, if you think about the things that are positive traits about Ginkgo, she is brave. She's a little reckless. A little dumbass, yes. Which, a yeah. lot dumbass. But dumbass in, like, not a insensitive way, so much as, like, a... I may not be the smartest person, but it's almost an asset because it means I'm not constantly overthinking myself or scheming. And I think a lot of those elements are shared between the two characters. And in a lot of ways, I kind of connect her entire arc with basically being, from Kureha's perspective, she seems more like an anti-character at first because she's weirdly sinister. She comes from this mysterious place She's flanked by, like, this other weird girl. At the beginning of the show, they play a little bit with the idea that these two may be sinister. 
But when you see the world from Ginkgo's perspective, Ginkgo is just a girl in love who feels guilty because she didn't live up to her own kind of self-imposed ideal of being this heroic, you know, person that she wants to be, who's basically showing up to be a hero and save Kureha, which she does multiple times. She kind of, if there's a character I would map to Utna directly in the cast, it would probably have been Ginkgo, to be honest. I think I agree with you, especially like I do. I map Kareha primarily. I, I map Utana primarily to Kareha, but I think it's notable that to me, Kareha, how do I put this? I see Kareha almost like as Utana at her weakest in a lot of ways, not in the sense that Kareha is a weak um, or bad character. The difference between them is really that Utana is like uncompromisingly idealistic. Like, she is driven by her ideals, and she believes in her ideals, like, without really... Like, she struggles with upholding them at various points, but most of the time in the narrative, she's, she's like, able to uphold them, like, until you get towards the end and Akio really starts undermining everything she's about. But Kareha's ideals revolve around protecting people in the same way that um, Utuna does and in believing in love. And, you know, by episode two, Kareha's had all of that, like, completely taken out from under her because she's already she's lost her mom and she's lost um, Sumika, who was the person the like Anthe-esque figure that she was fixated on protecting. So she, I sort of see her as Utena minus the armor of the prince archetype and the strength that that gave her, like the ability to believe in herself that that gave her. And Ginko, on the other hand, does have that idealistic streak that we see in Utena. She believes in love as uncompromisingly as Utena believed in the idea of being a prince. And she believes that specifically because she learned it from Kareha, regardless of the fact that not that Kareha betrayed her knowingly, but she Ginga would have been within her rights to feel betrayed after Kareha forgot about her. So, yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't been thinking about Ginko as a Kareha until now, but I, I, I think that holds out. As an Utena? As an Utena, yes. Sorry. There's so many nouns here. That, no, that's more so that someone listening doesn't go, ah, uh, they said Kareha instead of Utena. Yeah. If I wanted yeah. to get really, really mind-twisty here, I think your read on Kareha is also really interesting, because, like, she does have a lot of Utena qualities about her as well. I think an interesting take to kind of go here is number one i've joked before that ginkgo is Andy and uh Utena's kid <laughs> yeah and i think that that is actually true of both her and kareha because if i really reflect on how they relate to the characters of the past series they both embody kind of a mix of traits from the two characters and i think what kareha gets from Anthe more than anything is she gets the quiet kind of resistance archetype. Yeah. Because Kureha is not actually a particularly weak character. Even you talk about how she kind of has everything stripped away from her. I think a better way of looking at her is actually that like Anthe, she is put into a awful situation and she resigns herself to enduring it. But unlike Anthe, she doesn't really believe she deserves it. Anthe is trapped partially because she blames herself for all of the everything that has happened. 
and kind yeah. of accepts that like this is my place i should be upon the wheel Kareha never has a moment where she's she ever thinks i am to blame for what has happened to me she will have moments of survivor's guilt where she feels bad that it's her who has made it out of the people she's lost but a lot of her story is about her kind of taking this abuse that everyone else in society throws at her and quietly kind of resisting it either in small ways by just refusing to forget about Sumika, for instance, even though all of society would prefer she did, and it makes her a target for continued abuse, which she becomes aware of and still holds onto it. Yeah. And... You know, she also never kind of forgets anyone else either. Curry has sort of got that, I am the lone survivor of everything bad that has happened. I am the one who remembers thing going on. And I think that is, if I was going to connect her to Anthe, which I admit is probably a more tenuous connection than my connection of Ginkgo to Utna, that would be the lens I'd take, is they are both taking ideas from the previous main characters but they're both remixing bits of those personalities so that they are both reflections of the older characters but also kind of their own unique thing yeah i i see what you're saying and i think one way to phrase the the kareha and anthe connection in a way that makes the connection seems stronger is like in the same way that like Ginkgo inherits Utena's idealism I guess is how you could say Kureha does inherit Anthe's like I guess the word I would use is realism or sense of like the the material conditions of oppression that exist in the world which doesn't necessarily like it's not that those are like the truth of the world or anything it's just like that's the conflict and I, I would say that there's some color coding to that, too, because what I've noticed in Ikuhara shows is he does like to have these like red and blue or pink and blue pairs of characters where the pink character is more the idealist or the the one driven by how do I put it like head empty, but big heart. Wait, is this a, is this just a red, red, and blue only thing? Maybe to some extent. Yeah. I mean, the color coding does kind of read that way. I was actually going to point out that uh, if you want to really go deep on the blue-red thing, Kuriha's entire outfit and dominant color for most of the series is blue. And she's the Sky Girl, so, like, she's even more blue. Yeah. What I find really interesting is that her namesake flower is the red camellia. Yeah. Which we see a couple of times that Kureha has like small elements of red, usually relating to her name and little motifs. Like her mug has is shaped like a little uh, red camellia flower, and I always thought that was like a neat little detail that connected her as well because Anthe's dominant color as the Rose Bride was always red. Yeah, that element of her design uh, of like of the themes associated with Kureha actually pops up in her design. Right at the end, when she gets the little camellia crown, when she, like, achieves bear form, and finally, like, ideologically meets Ginkgo in the middle. So yeah, I think there's a really strong argument to be made there. Another place that you see this, um, I think, is in Sarazamai, where you have Kazuki as, like, the idealist obsessed with the idea of connections, indeed to the point that he's, like, 
you know, like presenting himself as like Sara Azuma, who is like the goddess of connections in the world of Sarazanmai, and Toy, who is like blue, and he is just completely defined by his real world circumstances and what reality does to connections. Like that is what Toy is about and what he's concerned with. And of course, like the ending of Sarazanmai is basically Kazuki doing the Utena reaching for Anthe in the coffin thing again. And, you know, the fact that it, it it plans out that way does give it... No, never mind. I went on a train of thought, and then I, like, realized that I got tangled up midway through. So never mind about that okay, one. <laughs> no, I've been there so many times. Do not worry. I definitely, yeah. I definitely see a lot of... It's hard for me... So when I, when I originally... When I read your kind of original pitch, I had not thought of those two as being kind of connected in really any way. Those two being uh, Yuri Kuma and Utena, I believe. And okay. having sat with this a while, like I see it. I was really interested to just hear you talk about what, how your experience of that connection, how you see that connection, because it had not been obvious to me. Yeah, I believe Alice. What you said was, I don't really see it, but I'm open to it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely see it a, a little more now. Like I definitely see elements of a kind of remixed elements of Utni and Anthe uh Utni lol Utna and Anthe again in um Ginkgo and in Kuriha. Not in the same proportions, but revisited. And and, and it, it you brought Sarazanmai and I kinda see them again remixed in different proportions in Sarazanmai. Well we like, yeah. we've long said that Sarazanmai is Ikuhara just sort of taking these ideas that he has attempted to explore in other anime and kind of like distilling them into like his most Ikuhara ness. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm really glad to hear that it like it kind of it at least kind of flies. Yeah, um, I, I definitely see what you're what you're going for here. As 100%. your thesis board, we can give you the go ahead to continue with this project. Excellent. Okay, so <laughs> here's where it gets like really fun for me, like where it like goes from something that I think is like interesting to think about. So something that I think is interesting to think about and also like fulfilling enough that it like adds emotionally to my experience of Ikuhara's works in a continuum. So let's talk about Lulu. Best girl. Best girl. So my take on Lulu is that I'm, I consider her like 70% Wakaba. Like she's mostly just another take on the Wakaba archetype. Actually, part of the reason that I fixated on Ginkgo as the Anthe isn't really so much to do with Anthe or Ginkgo in and of themselves, but more to do with Lulu, because I really liked the idea of, you know, in Utena, Wakaba plays this role where she is like this like innocent mistress character to Utena, where like Utena's like engaged and she's got this like quasi married relationship to Anthe and then Lulu's uh, Wakaba's kind of the mistress like there's I don't like the Utena manga very much but there's actually like a panel where Wakaba straight up is like Utena says some gay, sh gay shit about Anthe and Wakaba's like that's something you would say to someone you were married fine I'll be the mistress then and I <laughs> love that for her and then in Yurikuma I just kind of see Lulu as 
Wakaba again just being the mistress, but for the anthe this time. And I love that for her. So <laughs> I just like that. I just kind of like fixated on that. So maybe that like, I don't want to say skewed, but like focused my perception of the characters along a particular lens. But anyway, what I see with Lulu is that she's like, she's like the fulfillment of Wakaba's like biggest desire in the narrative of Utena, which is that like what Wakaba really wanted above everything else was to get to be important and special in the story and to like shine on her own terms. And if those are the metrics of success that Wakaba defines for herself, then Lulu, like, absolutely gets that, because I don't think I know someone besides Alice who says that she's not the best character in Yui Kuma. <laughs> Wrong person. I'm the one who says she's not the best. Alice links Lulu is best girl. No, that's, no, I, no, don't. Wait, who do you think is? Obviously, Ginko's best. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking of. Who do you think is the best cast? Do you have to ask? Yes. Okay. No. No. I, that, that, that's that, that's I fair. Think it's you Kuria. haven't been following the episodes this whole time. Ginko. I assume Kuria. <laughs> Ginko. I like that Alice and I both guessed Kuria, but it was Ginko. <laughs> like, what? No. No. Kuri- okay. Actually, no. That's fair because Kuria is probably my favorite character besides Ginko. But like, this, that's such a hard decision. Don't make me choose between my two children. How do you choose among your children? Really. That's fair. I honestly can't pick between any of the three of them either. Well, yeah, and you were talking earlier about not being able to rank Ikuhara series, and I also feel kind of similarly, where it's like, I love you all for very different reasons. Yeah. People joke about, like, you know, I can't rate my children, but one of my kids is shitty. No, like, I I legitimately cannot choose between these wonderful children, these babies, these adorable, these adorable little muffins. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i don't know why i just go muffins there uh alice brought home udon and i am eating it and i am feeling better but i have been hungry for a very long time <laughs> on my brain. you got muffins on the brain i like that someone here like where you talk about lulu here i like that someone else is kind of catching that lulu is like what if wakaba was also anatomy yes like because the anatomy the anatomy thing with the cat and lulu with milnet like it's literally just the, it's it's the same thing again. Yeah, it, it, it's the it same. Is. If anything, it's I wouldn't say that it's worse so much as it's like they're extremely different kinds of of, of terrible and fucked up. The only way that it could be more the same is if the cat that Nanami killed was Suwabuki. So if Suwabuki was a cat boy, no, and no, Nanami that killed that probably would have made it, honestly that probably would have absolved at least a little bit of it. <laughs> No, I mean, I, we can make, it, we can make exceptions. Alice, the resident Suabuki hater. I, I, I refuse to remember his name on purpose. That character has a name? Yeah, no, he's, he's Manservant Chan. That's his name. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I was also very sold when I got to the point in your notes where you said that Lulu is Wakaba, but also Nanami, because uh, yeah, as, that that is, as that is my favorite Utena ship, I can pretend that she is their daughter. Yes, I love that. <laughs> we got to figure out who Kureha's parents are. Yeah, Kureha's parents is herself. Oh, right, yeah, because uh, she reproduces by budding. Right. (laughs) 
but yeah, so um, the cliff notes with Lulu is that she gets to be important like Wakaba wanted, but being important in an Ikuhara anime uh, is synonymous with being fucked up. So yeah. Lulu has to be more fucked up than Wakaba was. So what Ikuhara ends up doing is having her echo uh, Nanami's arc with the cat, where she like kills something pure that just gives her love unconditionally. Except with Lulu, it's a little more loaded because um, she's killing her brother, who's offering her unconditional platonic love, which is what Nanami always wanted from Toga and never got. So both of these characters are sort of combined into this new version of themselves and have their old unfulfilled wishes come true. But then the story continues on from there and sort of expands on like what kind of karmic challenges or narrative flaws can come out um, to complicate her life from there. Thank God I decided to write these. <laughs> I cannot do this on the fly. I'm a YouTuber, not a podcaster. <laughs> You're incredibly powerful for doing this live. But yeah, so uh, and then from there, it, it's also fun because I would make the argument that you know, if Lulu hadn't died, uh, Kareha and Ginkgo probably would have reciprocated, at least to some extent. It just like, you know, press F to pay respects for Lulu. F's in the chat. F's in the chat. But in the same way that you can see Lulu as a progression from Wakaba and Nanami, I think you can read Enta's sister in Sarazanmai, I think her name is Otone? Yes. As a progression on Lulu. And to go along with that, you can see Enta as a progression on Milne, where Enta is an exploration of how Milne's kind of like unconditional self-destructive love is like once you grow up a little, like pretty obsessive and unhealthy and so and just like not not great. And it's it's really good to like see that because one of the biggest criticisms of Ikuhara shows that I had agreed with over time was this kind of like endorsement or lionization of like self-sacrifice. Yes. So I don't know. I, I enjoyed that. And it comes with this like happy note of like Lulu getting to live a life where she gets to just live with her brother and enjoy being an older sister. And one thing that really turn things around for me in terms of like taking this idea seriously is noticing that in the Sarazanmai um, episode that focuses on Enta and Otone, the, the focus is on Otone going out there to try and get a kiss. Like the focus of that episode um, is the wordplay between kissu fish and kiss as in like a, a, a kiss. You're kidding me. Yeah, and like I never got that. The a kiss is the exact thing that Lulu gives up in Yurikuma to go to the human world with Ginko. She talks to the judges and they're like, you have to either give up a kiss or give up on love. And Lulu is like, I've already lost my kiss. My promised kiss is dead. But if I help Ginko and Kareha fulfill their love, I have hope that I can see him again. Ikuhara is a flat circle. Yeah, Ikuhara is a flat circle. So yeah, that's that's my that's my take on Lulu and it makes me man, my eyes are already welling up cuz I'm just really happy that Lulu gets to be so happy good. out there somewhere. We must imagine Lulu happy. We <laughs> Yes. I think that covers the big 3, the main trio. Who else do we got? Anthe I see as being like 
Kumaria as the goddess, like, represents Anthe as goddess, who, like, just, like, has all these powers that define the nature of the show that she inhabits. So that's that's pretty one-to-one. And, you know, the, the Yuri Kuma starts with the planet Kumaria exploding and raining shards down on the planet, which is my explanation for how the show, like, meta-narratively justifies all these different, like, angles of Anthe or, like, looks at Anthe or archetypes of Anthe just showing up, basically. It's as if when Kumaria exploded, Kumaria was really Utena, like, the universe of Utena, and then it rained down its fragments onto Yuri Kuma, and that's how everything got recombined. Ooh, I love that. Oh, that's so good. Hmm. I'm just sitting with that in my heart for a second right now. <laughs> That's how it all fits together, baby. We figured it out. You figured it out. By the way, I like that you mentioned the rebuild of Eva here because the to- I don't know how much of the show you've listened to so far, but you've probably heard me joke about the time loops. Time loops. Yes. I- I've heard, like, I I listened through all of Utena. Um, and all of Sarah's mm-hmm. and my and all of Eurekuma. Here's the thing: is my memory is not yeah. great. So um, you, you know the whole like you know the whole Eva Evangelion time time loop thing. Yeah, yeah. So I start as a joke. I started saying that maybe the various versions of Utha were in fact like the various time loops. And it turned and out that that's just canon. It just it just became yes. more and more like actually like unironic. No, maybe I was maybe maybe we were right actually. I, we yeah. should have been calling Alice Cassandra. It's true. Oh, shit. She was telling the future and we weren't listening. <laughs> or I guess I wasn't listening. That's on me. <laughs> but I just kind of appreciated seeing that in the wild. Yeah. I, 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 I like the I, I like the um, the comparison there of the sort of thematic repetition. Yeah. I've always loved that interpretation, personally. I come from a very... I was raised on, like, Stephen King, I guess, is where my background is. So I'm very comfortable with this idea of, like, an idealistic universe where, like, all the different versions of a story exist in parallel. Like, that's just kind of, like, home base for where my brain is. So when stories actually, like, construct themselves to mirror that, it just it puts me in a happy place. So I always agreed with you on that, like a hundred percent. See now I'm now I'm worried because you've brought King into this, and now I'm just in the back of my head thinking, oh god, is is there a tower version of of Utena? Like, is is there is is Utena Roland Deskane now? Or the entirety of the podcast is led up to this moment, Alice. <laughs> you bringing the dark tower two, and finally the dark tower and Utena together. <laughs> I hate to tell you this, but there is a Dark Tower in the Utena universe, uh, in the Ikuhara cinematic universe. Oh god, you're right. And it's Akio's penis tower. Oh no. (laughs) And there's like, there's not just a rose to compliment it, there's an entire rose garden. My whole world is breaking. (laughs) I'm, this is not okay. And we know that Ikuhara, we know that Ikuhara knows his king because Yurikuma's like out here specifically referencing the Shining I, as no, the Wall of Severance no, itself. No, so somewhere out there, Roland Deskane is doing dumb shit 
how many times through the loop he's been. Oh God. I, I I'm never gonna unsee that. I'm never gonna not think about that now. I can't I can't watch Uthana again. <laughs> I'm shocked that you it. didn't come to this conclusion earlier. I was blind. I was blinded by optimism. The real question is, when are we gonna get rebuild of the Dark Tower? Um <laughs> hopefully never. It was it was wild enough the first time. I can't even imagine what would happen to it if he tried it again. I don't want to think about it. It haunts yeah. me. Cursed. Yeah. Well, sorry, Idris Elba, but your bad movie protects us from a greater force of evil. God, he was so good in it, though. Yeah. Oh, well. I mean, oh, he's well. Idris Elba. Oh. Like, he's going to be good in I mean, anything. He's going to be literally. good as Knuckles the Echidna. Like, he's going to be is good. is he as... actually going to be Knuckles the Echidna? Yeah, he no, really that's not, that's not just a meme, Alice. He was actually cast as Knuckles the Echidna no. in the next Sonic the Hedgehog movie. No. No. Yes. No, it's real. No. And for this reason, I will actually watch it. Honestly, the oh. first Sonic movie is not even that bad. Like, I mean, it's not great, but it's also not that bad. You know, I was really expecting the end of the world to be, like, dramatic or tragic or something, but, like, it's really just kind of dumb. Not with Mostly. a bang, but with a whimper. Not with a bang, <laughs> but with a, with, with a Tim Allen on... Oh, uh, whatever that fucking show is. Home Improvement. Diet. Tim Allen Home Improvement Grunt Diet um, MP3. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only I had that in the soundboard. If I'm feeling I ambitious, know. I'll add that in post. What a beautiful thing it would have been. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just thought of Rebuild of Dark Tower happening and the Dark Man, the Man in Black being cast as Tommy Wiseau. Fuck. It's wow. too powerful of an idea to be real. It's true. So Yuri Kuma. <laughs> Remember when so this podcast gay berry was anime? Yeah. Remember when this podcast was about anime and not Stephen King novels? So to, to bring back the Dark Tower thing and back to the original kind of what we're talking about, I think it, I think it is mildly relevant here because King, in a lot of his fiction, is tying most of his fiction is tied into the Dark Tower in some kind of way. And this is not the first time that we've kind of, on this show, approached the idea that Igahara kinda, sorta, is doing this, doing that. The Dark Tower is his Tsubasa Reservoir Chronicle. Kinda, yeah. Everything, yeah. like, there, everything does kind of keep coming back to some core element that, he just can't let go of as a creator and his shows just cannot escape. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. And one of the things I always enjoyed about Utsuno is the way that he used repetition internally. And it, it is kind of neat to see that it's like repetition internally, repetition across the, the corpus of the work. So it's like it's wheels within wheels. Yeah. Just like the Utsuno car in Adolescence of Utsuno. Yeah. <laughs> They're wheels. Introducing the new ship, Shiori X Christine, the car. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. But yeah, um, just to like bang out the other like parallel characters that I nailed down in Yuri Kuma. So Sumika's like pretty obviously like Anthe as like the damsel or innocent that Kariha wants to protect, but she's also like in touch with uh, the goddess 
with Kumaria. Um, we get that scene where she like does that little meditation with like the flowers and stuff. And then she's like, I'll never back down on love. And it's like pretty strongly implied that she's got knowledge of like how the plot is going to go ahead of time and all that stuff. So there's like this weird shade of Sumika knowing what's up and just like letting Kareha be ignorant in the same way that Anthe did to Utena. But this time she's like expressly looking out for her Utena analog. So that's cool. But the other thing that's that's interesting about her is that she's like the the most direct confirmation we get that the shards of Kamaria can manifest as just straight up a person. So that implies something to me about the character that's my real hot, hot take, which is Mitsuko, the like the Toga analog character who kills Sumika and is like grooming Kareha to eat her before Yurika come, comes along. And because what Mitsuko reminds me of is the idea of Anthe as like a, a manipulator of Utena that's like looking to consume or exploit her the same way Toga did. And it specifically reminds me of the body as a bargaining ship essay on empty movement yes. um, and how it how it compares Toga and Anthe as like uh, manipulative figures that are focused on sexuality as a means of uh, manipulation. And in particular, I think it's interesting about Mitsuko that she looks a lot like Sumika and is able to pretend to be her so well and like emulate her so well that Kareha is just like not only totally undone by the similarity between them, but unable to shoot Mitsuko, even though she's like so furious at Mitsuko for killing Sumika. So I don't know. It's just it's interesting to me. Um, it's sort of like two different parallel versions of Anthe that are like lit uh, for Kareha to experience as like discrete entities. And that's that's interesting as a way of like interrogating the complexity of the nuance of of Utena and Anthe's relationship to me. And then there's Eureka, who's like. Anthe as like the head witch or headmistress of the school grounds, basically. Um, and also as like the bride in the box to a prince, because that's Eureka's backstory is she was groomed by a prince. And now she then she killed her prince, but now she's become the new predator, um, which is the other dark take that you could have about Anthe in the wake of the show. Is that like, even if she did kill or leave um, Akio, like the mark of what she did under him would still be on her and she wouldn't necessarily not be a toxic person after that. So seeing Eureka as another interpretation of Anthe makes me a little bit more comfortable with the pathos given to her when she dies. But, you know, it's, it's just another note of another like uh, potential parallel. I Something about the way that interpretations of Anthe can fit into so many characters in this show really reminds me of Anthe's all girls are rose brides in the end. Yes. Oh, that reminds me. The other interesting thing that connects Ginkgo and Eureka in particular is that they both like seem to come out of nowhere, literally. Like yeah. they both seem to just kind of be born in the environment. Like they're, they're like left somewhere on the side of the road. So like, they don't seem to have real parents. They're just taken in by different abusive aspects of society. And that to me sounds like 
these are just shards of Kamaria that landed somewhere and just became people. And probably Sumika's the same way, and probably Mitsuko's the same way. That makes sense. Yeah. Which isn't something that needs an explanation. Like, I'm definitely, like, splitting hairs, but this is, I'm just like this. I mean, there's, there's definitely something there. Yeah. Who else? Um... The bear judges are direct mirror to Akio because it's what they really are is like Komaria's equivalent to Choo Choo because Choo Choo was always like Anthe's animus that she used to like maneuver circumstances in the world to like make the plot happen the way it needed to happen. But um, Shuchu was also always like a reflection of Akio and uh, in his design until he ditches the tie, right? The difference is that since Kumaria is like the ruling goddess of this reality and it, what rules this reality is the idea of love, not the prince, the bear judges are subservient to Kumaria. So they still have the shitty instincts of Akio, but those are like kept in, they're, they're restrained, they're leashed so to speak, by Kamaria's like, greater benevolent will. And she can, like, use them as tools and have them serve her while, you know, they still do their Akio shit. The three little bear girls who bully Ginko when she's a little kid remind me a lot of Nanami Stooges in terms of, like, their story function. The three girls that, like, uh, bully Anthe on Nanami's behest. Yeah, absolutely. And they're also presumably subjects of Lulu's kingdom, because Lulu's, like, the princess of the Bear Kingdom, as far as we can tell. So, you know, there's that. And Konomi, the, the leaf bear girl who gets cyborgized, is the funniest to me because I feel like she's Anthe's memory of Sayanji. <laughs> her relationship to Mitsuko mirrors Lulu's relationship to Ginko, but in the same way that Sayanji's relationship to Toga mirrors Utena's relationship to Anthe, to me, in the sense that they're like really devoted friends who are really passionate about the object of their affection, but the object of their affection is focused on something else. And in every case except Ginko, they operate on a degree of alienation that makes it impossible for them to connect emotionally to the person that's adoring them. So like Toga, Anthe, and uh, Mitsuko all to some extent view their charges, like their, their friends as like tools. And like Mitsuko in particular, like says, she tells Kareha about Konomi that um, she might have been her friend as long as she was useful, and that the only thing that matters when you're considering friendship is whether your friend is a little bit inferior to you um, so that they're easy to control, which is like exactly how Toga views Sayanji for most of the show. Extremely so, yeah. And also, Konami is like her, her most prominent visual design is like having the leaf thing on her head. And Sayanji's really really strongly identified with a leaf in uh, the Wakaba episodes in particular. Like, I would argue that the the image of the leaf is like the symbol of Sayanji. Sayanji's ability to give genuine love is how I would frame it in my head. But then, of course, he fucks that up because he's Sayanji. (laughs) And I think that covers the whole list. I think that's everyone that I had in mind. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, Yuri Kuma's a good show. 
It is a good show. It I think really if we have learned, yeah, I think if we've established anything for sure and working through this is that I was a little worried at first that we were not going to have as, as much to talk about really, but we ended up being able to get a lot of a lot of out of Yurikuma and that's been really satisfying to come back and kind of do again. Yeah, I think that Yurikuma has been overlooked in the yeah. in the Ikihara Ufra because it it sits in a weird place between like the whole cinematic universe, if you will, exists on a continuum and like each one is a product of when it came out also. And I think in a way a lot of people didn't know what to make of Yurikuma because it was coming out in the time period which anime was shifting more towards being more like 12 episode seasons as opposed to longer seasons and so when things were kind of weird for the first three episodes and maybe a little less like immediately grabbing than maybe Utena uh I think people were more likely to give up on it and that's why I think we need to have the 2021 Yurikuma renaissance yeah that definitely makes sense. It's also the fan service elements in Penguin Drum and in Yuri Kuma also um, did a lot of damage to Ikuhara's reputation. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. That I think that I think started to heal with Sarazanmai somewhat. Uh, at the very least, the the popular the popular conception among active fans no longer seems to be that this guy's like a lesbian fetishist, basically of a year, so to speak. So yeah. I definitely think uh, Yurikuma's like the most overlooked Ikuhara anime, I feel like, right now. Absolutely. Because like there's also like even the outside of like the stuff with it as like an Utena sequel or anything like that, there's also just like the strong elements of like uh, Christianity and spirituality that Yurikuma's so concerned with. And I just, I don't think anime fandom is like too equipped to deal with that even now let alone back in 2015 so it's like i don't know yurikuma is like juggling a lot of ideas that are kind of messy yeah messy and out of left field for anime fandom yeah i i will say that i think that in terms of like ambition versus execution yurikuma is definitely more ambitious than maybe it was able to 100 percent pull off in the end and that's why it has kind of deterred a lot of people and why people find it a little difficult to either watch and or talk about but yeah, I definitely agree with that. That sentence kind of just stopped and I didn't know where else to take it, but <laughs> <laughs> that's how it is. But yeah, I, I definitely I think Ikuni was a little more ambitious with Yurikuma than perhaps he may have been able to pull off at the time. And it's that dissonance that turns people off because yeah. it's not a lot that's trying to do and it doesn't always land a perfect 10 on all the things that it's trying to get across i don't know it's hard for me to really call that as like his reach exceeded his grasp so much as i've talked before about how i feel like sometimes i think 
Yuri Kuma is a little compressed at 12 episodes in a way that his other shorter shows aren't. Well, that's also kind of what what I mean is that, like, if maybe this had been given a little more room to breathe, I think maybe part of the reach exceeding his grasp was attempting to fit everything he wanted to do in the time frame that Yuri Kuma had. Exactly. But I also think that, like, even factoring in for that compression, time has only ever gotten kinder to Yuri Kuma. Yeah. I think that, like, the real issue is that in 2012, Yurikuma existed in context with Utna and Penguin Drum, and kind of nothing else. Yeah. But since... Or did I say 2012? It came out after that. Yeah, it was 2015. 2015. 2015, thank you. In 2015, it was still really only in contrast with the other existing Ikuhara shows, and since then we've had... You know, previous to that, like, Madoka Magica got big, and there's been, like, a wave of shows that kind of jumped off the back of that, which I think that kind of appetite for surrealism that people who saw the original Madoka and got really into it got uh, has created more of an audience for Yurikuma over time. Uh, We've had uh, Review Starlight happen since then, which is kind of very different, but is also a sapphic show created and storyboarded and kind of run basically by uh, Ikuhara alumni. Yeah. And yeah. I've described it as like Utena light. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's Utena for people who don't want discourse. What if Utena was a musical? Uh, what like, if Utena we was already really, have that, really, Alice. What if Utena was really specifically concerned with the specific politics of a Japanese theater style that has a long political history? <laughs> yeah. Which is partially like... That's its own thing. Like, it is... Review Starlight, it feels like Udina Light until you learn literally anything about Takarazaka Theater, and then it feels like, no, actually, this is exactly as ambitious and detailed in some ways as Udina. It's just hyper-focused on one specific topic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I didn't... To be clear, I didn't mean that to Starlight's detriment. I love Review Starlight. I just meant, like... Review Starlight is definitely tackling, like, some heady themes in terms of, like, career exploitation um, and, like, pitting girls against each other in terms of careers and stuff. A little less intense in a lot of other ways. Yeah, mainly, like, the, the, the sexual stuff. Yeah. Like, you just don't, you're not gonna get, like, the kind of discourse that you get with surrounding, like, Utena and Anthe or... Oh, uh, I, or Yurikuma. Now, okay, that makes a little sense. Yeah, like regardless, I think like the overall feeling I have is that as there's been more shows in this kind of vein, and time has gone on, I think Yurikuma is going to be a show people go back to and realize that on giving it a second watch, they have number one. It's just a show that because it's built around the end of the series, recontextualizing the beginning, it's always going to be better on watch two than it is on watch one. Yeah, because now you know what's going to happen, so you go in and everything reads differently than it did the first time. But number two, it's a show that really benefited from having the landscape of media around it uh, get more fish in the pool, kind of letting people experience it not as the follow up to specifically Utena, but also as a work in its own right in a larger body of artistic work that is out there yeah 
And like as as much fun as I've had talking about like how it specifically relates back to Udina, I think that is one of the things that hurt it is people initially people very very determined to go like why didn't Ikuhara make something that looked like Utna again? Why didn't he just make another Utna? And, you know, now not only can we appreciate the connections he did put into Utna a lot better, we can also appreciate it more as, like, Yurikuma's out there doing its own thing and being its own artistic effort. And I, I kind of appreciate it for that. Yeah, definitely. What I heard a lot over the years was people framing Yurikuma not so much in terms of Utena specifically, but as like a reaction and a commentary on Yuri tropes and class S tropes. And that was like it was a framing of an uh of a look at, at Yurikuma that I always found interesting and it, I think it's definitely valuable. But over the years I started to find it limiting only because for whatever reason it was just the only framing of Yurikuma that I would ever hear. It's not not there, but I started there, and the more that we've watched it again, it's more of just... It, it's definitely... You could definitely read it, but it's probably... It is often a less interesting way to... Like, the less interesting way to read any situation there. Given that, yeah. according to Yasha and Vana, who know it a lot better, Yurikuma definitely pays a lot of homage to old exploitation films. I kind of look back and my thought is, you know, that a lot of the Class S stuff that shows up might be more of a paying homage to earlier kind of cinematic and artistic language surrounding the trope of WLW than it is so much like a, a reaction to it. Yeah. It's more using this older language to kind of let you know, we're going to frame the boundary of the story and kind of front load a lot of cultural information so that the story that you actually see playing out can focus on being itself. It is by doing that kind of subverting those older stories to some extent, but it's also yeah. not doing that as it's a major artistic goal. It's just kind of a consequence of using that language to tell a story where, you know, the ending is such as it is. Yeah. Really the only thing that's like, deeply subversive to class S in my mind that happens in Yurikuma is that Kareha um, acknowledges the idea of I have to destroy this old image of myself and I have to accept my lover for who she is, which might be given the idea of class S is like, this is, is the idea of, you know, these relationships for whatever reason are fleeting. Yeah. The I idea of radically redefining yourself into not even what you recognize as a person anymore, kind of embracing the other is the biggest difference between Yurikuma and Class S, I would think. Yeah. And, like, it, Yurikuma defines their relationship as, like, archetypal, like, capital T true love that is, like, eternal. Mm -hmm. Which is another thing that I, I think is subversive about Yurikuma, not necessarily in terms of class s specifically but in terms of wider culture is this is a story that yes it has a lot of very direct uh depiction of sexuality and like uh teen sexuality which i can understand why that makes some people uncomfortable but this is also a story that's invested in framing teen sexuality not just as a source of horror or fear 
but also as a source of like spiritual transcendence and like this like i guess how i put it is like this christian notion of like salvation because that's that's what happens in yuri kuma is like this is to some extent a story about these characters who grow up who grow up in a world um that tells them to hate each other that tells them to hate themselves in the human world's case primarily and who escape who achieve a kind of freedom from that by choosing to like radically uh, believe in love to the point of martyrdom which is like if if that's not like explicitly what ends up happening because we don't know for sure that Kureha and Ginko die and I don't choose to believe that they do at least not in any way that matters you know the the imagery of martyrdom is certainly there <laughs> like because they're put up, they're put up to the firing squad for daring to love each other and I think that's really important like that's a valuable thing that Yurikuma is doing because when I was a queer teenager what I felt from my relationship to spirituality and religion was damnation and like the sense of like being poisoned by my desire and here's Yurikuma going no your desire and like your love is like part of what makes you holy like this is a show where the the magical girl transformation sequence is both super sexy and also an electrosynth remix of ave maria like it's doing something here with this like religious iconography that i think is worth looking at yeah, absolutely. I've not really thought about that um, angle as much. I think I will have to. I, I, we might end up talking about that at some later point. It's a it's a pretty recent one for me, too. And it's weird because it's like I rewatched the show like 10 times before it even occurred to me. And then I was like, wait a minute. Kumaria is literally an angel. And Kumaria is like a pun on Kuma, but it's also a pun on Mary as in Mother Mary. And Ave Maria is all over the place in this thing. There's something going on here. What am I looking at? <laughs> so, like, um, there's an alternate universe where that is, like, the suggestion that I threw in to talk about instead. <laughs> um, and I decided to do the Utena one because it felt easier to parse out. So, yeah. All right. Well, do we have any more things that we want to cover before we wrap up? Mm. It's okay. I don't have any specifics. No. I was going to say, I think we covered most, yeah. most of the everything, unless Taz has something. No, I think I have. I think that covers everything that I had in mind. Lulu is best girl. <laughs> That's very important. Um. Oh, in episode three, when Kareha successfully shoots a bear for once, uh, when she shoots Mitsuko, she is she can't shoot Mitsuko at first, Um. and then she goes into like the the invisible storm sequence with the lily licking and all of that when Ginko and Lulu like lick her all up yeah. and like tell her about love. That is like a direct analog <laughs> to Utena being possessed by the prince and being able to like deliver the winning blow uh, in a duel. What a lovely way to describe that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you gotta Thank describe you. it somehow. It's true. But yeah, that scene is like that is the equivalent to Utena being possessed by the prince and like being able to sword fight good enough to take the sword, the flower off her opponent's chest. You're correct. Kareha's like empowered by love in the same way that Utena is empowered by the prince. I think I said that earlier, but I think I I might have forgot, so I figured I'd just say it. 
That's okay. If you did, uh, I'll just cut this out and then nobody will even know that you said it twice. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's everything that's in my head. Well, this has been great. And I really, I love this intertextuality between these two works because like we've said, uh, Yuri Kuma tends to be overlooked in terms of Ikikara fandom. And it really is deserving of this type of analysis because there is, there's quite a bit there to unpack if you actually like, you know, you, you gotta meet Yuri Kuma where it's at. And sometimes where it's at is uh, sequences of lily licking, you know, you just gotta uh, roll with it. And I think this was great. Yep, I agree. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. It was so great to finally meet you all. Yes, thank you so much. And listeners, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at UchnaCast. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can do that at Impandonata Alice. Where can people find you online? Um, They can find me online at Lyrewolf, L-Y-R-E-W-U-O-F. And Cass, why don't you tell us about the other podcasts that you and Alice do? Absolutely. Uh, Alice and I host a podcast called Big Steppy. We talk about uh, real robots, cool robots, and real cool robots. We are currently talking about Gundam Wing, and it has been a slog, but we are making it through. Uh, I've actually enjoyed it quite a bit as well. I've also been told by another friend to plug... uh, if any of our listeners really, really, really like Love Live, a person I know is putting together something called Northwest Idol Fest. Oh. Maybe if you're vaccinated, check that out. Yeah, definitely. So that's a thing. And uh, you can find stuff related to our podcast on at SteppyCast on Twitter. Taz, where can people find you on the internet should you wish to be found? Well, I'm on youtube as optimistic duelist i'm kind of on hiatus right now mostly because i like threw myself into writing a novel length infinity train fan fiction oh hell yes with a lot of like thematic inheritance from penguin drum and night on the galactic railroad so that's what i'm doing i'm at like 200 pages and i have no there's no end in sight um (laughs) So yeah, I'm on uh, I'm on YouTube at Optimistic Duelist. I'm on Twitter at uh, Rose of Nobility. Very good Twitter name. It's, I'm very proud of it. At Rose of Nobility. The actual name is like Taz. <laughs> Hard to find, I know. And then I'm on Tumblr at Optimistic Duelist 2. You gotta defeat Optimistic Duelist 0 and Optimistic Duelist 1 to take the crown. I was both of those, but I changed my name. I changed my name when Homestuck 2 happened, and then I never changed it back. (laughs) Okay, actually, I love that. I love that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, uh, that's where I'm at. And listeners, if you would like to support this show, you can find the Patreon at utsinacast.com. I need to do an updated reading out of all the patrons we will probably do that in our next episode because i meant to do it for this episode and did not prepare everything so uh we will do that next episode and we love and appreciate you 
And uh, if you would like to see me reblog Utena fan art on Tumblr, you can do that at imaginemeandutena.tumblr.com. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do that at our email address, which is imaginemeandutena at gmail.com. Or we have a Google form, which is how Taz got in contact with us. Uh, you can fill out that. It's in our pinned tweet on Twitter, and you can let us know what sort of Utena or Ikuhara sort of thing that you would like to talk about, and we can work on talking to you for an episode of this podcast. So uh, I think I think that's everything. And if it's not, uh, oh, well, I have to pee. So... Gal gal. Gal gal. I'll sync it up in post and they'll be none the wiser. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Look for the bare necessities.